0: Astrid and Jamila would like to acknowledge that this podcast was made on the lands of the Wurundjeri and the Boon Wurrung people of the Kulin Nation. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging, and we note that this sovereignty was never ceded. Hello and welcome back to Anonymous Was A Woman with myself, Jamila Risby, and my co-host Astrid Edwards. We are with you today because of the wonderful people at Future Women and also at Hachette Australia, who are sponsoring this season of the podcast and most importantly, helping us get in contact with some of the most amazing authors in the world right now. And today's guest is absolutely that. Britt Bennett graduated from Stanford University and she later got her MFA in fiction at the University of Michigan where she won all the awards. In 2014, she continued that streak when she won a few more awards for some essays that she was writing here, there and all about. Her debut novel, The Mothers, was a New York Times bestseller and her second novel, The Vanishing Half, was an instant number one New York Times bestseller. That is the book that we are going to be talking about today. In The Vanishing Half, Bennett follows a pair of twins and they have left their small black hometown in Louisiana. One of them eventually goes back home again and lives a life of difficulty and discrimination. The other reinvents herself and begins passing in middle-class California as a white woman. She hides the fact that she was a black woman when she was born and she passes as a white woman. And the novel follows these kind of two parallel stories and at the same time looks at questions of identity and questions of belonging in an incredibly clever, poignant and revealing way. It is our absolute pleasure to be chatting with Brit Bennett today.
1: Britt Bennett, I am so excited to speak to you today. I think that most listeners of Anonymous Was A Woman will already have read both of your works, but to kick us off today, can you introduce us to The Vanishing Half?
2: Sure, well, thanks for having me. The Vanishing Half is a story about identical twin sisters who grow up inseparably and decide to live their lives in very different directions on opposite sides of the colour line. One is a black woman and one is a white woman.
0: One of the things that really struck me when I was reading, is that the personal is always political. And your book begins in 68, which is the year Martin Luther King was assassinated. Your characters are grappling with their own experiences of race and discrimination and that kind of search for belonging. Can you tell us why the story began there? I know it stretches for decades, but why start there?
2: I think it started in that year for reasons that for me were both personal and political. The personal was that was the year that my mother actually moved to Washington, D.C., the week that Dr. King was assassinated, which was always just a crazy story for me to hear as a child um, of imagining my mother at like 19 or 20 being away from home for the first time ever and ending up in this like huge historical moment. So I think that was always interesting to me personally. So that felt like a cool way to kind of enter the story And I think in the kind of larger, more political, uh, or even maybe more historical just standpoint, it's such a fascinating year in American history, a very tumultuous year, and a year in which I think some of the optimism, perhaps, of the earlier 60s kind of died in that year. (laughs) The the hope that there could be nonviolent change in America, I think, if it had not died before then, that was certainly kind of the last year where I think anyone really believed that. So um, I, I thought also like a really just interesting moment to kind of enter the story as these characters are grappling with their identities and grappling with what it means to change and find themselves thinking about those questions as the country itself is going through a big moment of change.
1: We've all just lived through 2020, another historical moment and forcing of change. When you get feedback from your readers. When you hear from your readers at events or on social media, do you find their reading of The Vanishing Half or their emotional responses to The Vanishing Half different based on their own ethnicities, their own backgrounds?
2: That's an interesting question. Um, I mean, I think definitely people have different levels of connection to the story or they have different kind of entry points into the story. I think that is what has been... I think most noticeable to me, you know, I hear from a lot of black readers who are telling me the stories they have about family members who have passed. I have a lot of white readers who have never considered passing and just have questions about like, what does this mean? And they're just kind of new to that whole idea. Um, I have a lot of black readers who often are more interested in talking to me about colorism really than passing itself. So I have some of these kind of anecdotal trends that I've noticed of what people find particularly interesting are what their entry point into the story is but I think that to me seems to be the most the biggest difference I've noticed it's not necessarily their enthusiasm or their passion but kind of what it is that hooks them into the story and what they have the most questions about
0: let's stay with colorism and passing then because I've got to say that was my personal entry point into the book I'm Indian Iranian and I don't look it <laughs> and so have accidentally, I suppose, passed as a unintentionally passed as a white woman for a lot of my life, unless people are a bit smart when they hear my name. And there was so much for me that stuck out in that regard, particularly around passing not always being permanent and not always being deliberate, that it can kind of be this fleeting, unintentional thing as well. And one of the things I've noted is that here in Australia we haven't had a significant public conversation about colorism. Do you think that's starting to happen or happening in the United States? You guys are usually a good 20 years ahead of us. (laughs) What are the nuances of the debate that's happening within the US that you were looking to bring into the vanishing half? Or was this you trying to push uh, readers towards a conversation that they perhaps weren't having?
2: I think it's a conversation that's been hap- happening, but I don't know that it's been happening in a way that I ever found satisfying um, because I think often like any conversations about complicated things, I can often be very flattened. The conversations that I was kind of seeing were either kind of becomes a sort of oppression Olympics of who has it worse. Is it being, is it worse being light? Is it worse being dark? Um, which I think is just a reductive way to think about any identity as sort of who's oppressed more. So sometimes I would see it become that kind of conversation or the opposite, which is we shouldn't be talking about this at all because it's divisive and it's just meant to divide us and we should just ignore that color affects people's lives in material ways. So I found both of those kind of conversations to be very reductive and satisfying. So I wanted to think about in writing this book, I wanted to think about the way in which Color is something that materially affects these characters' lives and the way in which it's something that's experienced within the body. It's not just an intellectual or an ideological topic of how people are treated based on their color. It's something that people experience and it affects how you think about yourself, how you think about your body, how you, who you fall in love with, what your children look like, how people read your family, and all of these other really deeply personal and intimate aspects of being a person. All of that can be trace back in some way to your skin color. So I wanted to kind of update maybe this conversation that had been happening around me and tackle it from a way that felt more interesting to me than, than some of the conversations that I was witnessing.
1: Britt, you made me think so much about my own skin color and what I know of the history of race and what is playing out in America throughout my whole life, including today. As I read The Vanishing Half, I kept coming back to something that I had never thought of before in relation to colour. And that was choice. You know, Stella makes the choice to decide to pass and her sister doesn't. And so often, at least in the discussions that we have in Australia about race and skin colour, no one ever thinks about or no one ever interrogates publicly that I have heard the choice. What if someone decides to pass over as opposed to society not letting them do so? Can you talk to me about the choice? Because as a white person, that's not something that I'd ever considered.
2: I was interested in writing the book and thinking about people who have that choice and people who don't, you know, I'm not somebody who's ever mistaken for anything other than what I am. (laughs) So that's not something that I have ever made a conscious decision of how I want to be read or how I want to identify. So that's not something that I personally relate to. But, you know, I, I have had, you know, moments in my life, I was in a Spanish class once, and I like halfway through the semester, the professor very offhandedly said to me, like, "Oh yeah, well, you're Dominican, right?" and I was like thrown by it because I had never it never occurred to me that that's how he had been reading me the whole semester, and I was just surprising. That was the first time in my life that somebody had read me other than just a black American in some like very generic way. (laughs) So, but it was like that kind of realization that, oh, this person has been reading me in a different way. They have assumed things about my life that are not things that are true of my life. That was very disorienting. So I've always been interested in, in that of people who have that type of option to either, you know, willingly or either sort of claiming an identity or claiming a different identity versus people who are mistaken for something or you're read in a way that's different than how you identify. And you may not know that that's how people are reading you. There's just, I think there's always something really unstable about all of it. And what I wanted to write towards was that instability because I was going through that Spanish class, believing my identity to be very stable (laughs) and the whole time it was not, but I think that that instability, that inherent instability to who we all are, I think it's something that is always in flux, even if you don't think that it is, even if you think that however you identify is blatant and obvious, that's not necessarily the case. And the whole time you have been kind of transformed in somebody else's perception of you. So I think, I mean, that's obviously true about lots of different things, but I think that kind of particular aspect of identity being inherently unstable, even if you believe it to be stable, to me, there was something about that that kind of dissonant idea that felt really interesting.
0: I love hearing you talk about that. Both Astrid and I are people who live with disabilities and both of us are able to pass when it comes to being disabled women as well. And one of the things I've noticed that keeps coming up lately, and it's a different experience, of course, to race, is The number of people who say things like, oh, but I don't think of you like that, which to me is the ultimate passing, right? (laughs) And at the same time, when you hear a line like that, my immediate reaction is to be really hurt, to say, well, what, what do you mean? That means you don't think of me as me, I suppose. I wanted to ask, so the novel's set between sort of the 60s and goes right through to the 1990s, but you're writing it from the vantage point of now or a couple of years ago or a year ago. So you're writing from a vantage point where the questions of identity are a bit more fluid, certainly in some regards and more so than others, but we have a more fluid approach to those ideas of identity. So how did that shape your narrative and how you treated Stella as a character? Because you sort of had this, I don't know, almost the privilege of being in the future looking back on her experience.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that that idea of kind of was guiding me as I was writing the book. I think often other kind of older stories about passing, they they often sort of lean on, you know, sometimes punishing the character who passes. So these stories often end very tragically. And that was something that I kind of resented, the idea that, you know, race is so sacred that if you transgress it, you should die. (laughs) There was something about that that I didn't subscribe to that. So that was something that I wanted to kind of push back against. And I think also they often have this very essentialized view of race, which is, you know, I could just sense that she was black because there was some blackness in her that I sensed or, you know, whatever that means (laughs) to be black on the inside and whatever that means. That kind of sort of essentializing view of identity was something that I also rejected because, yeah, I just, it felt like, you know, complete nonsense to me. So there were different tropes like that, that kind of are part of that literary tradition that were kind of boring to me from an aesthetic point of view, but also from like a political and sort of standpoint as a 21st century writer, I'm just like, no, this is not real. Like the idea that, you know, race is something that's so essential that it can be spotted within you and all of these types of things that I think people maybe once believed more wholeheartedly, at least I can't say that nobody believes them now. I don't think that that's true, but I certainly don't believe that some of these things are true. So I wanted to kind of push back on those ideas. And again, just think of, identity not only being fluid but also being unclear and also unstable and like what does it mean if we consider race a category that you can move between among and it's not sort of this strict binary it's not something that's fixed it's not something that is you know real in a tangible way although it affects your life in a material way. And what does it mean that we have to exist in that truth, that it's something that's, a you know, race itself is a fiction, but racism is a reality. <laughs> like, what do we do with that knowledge? So I think a lot of it was kind of sitting in the discomfort of that. And, and, yeah, just continuing as I was thinking about the characters and the choices that they were making, continuing to imagine what does it look like if I... And writing a passing story that it takes for granted that identity itself is fluid. What does it then mean to pass if identity is fluid?
1: You've just prompted a, an unscripted question from me, Britt. So far in our discussion, we've been talking about race predominantly, and of course, that is the, the the fundamental kind of question. You know, Desiree and Stella are twins who who choose different paths in relation to race and identity, but of course your narrative in The Vanishing Half goes in so many other places as well. Now, Jude, Desiree's daughter, ends up having a relationship with Reese, and Reese is a trans person. I'm going to make a comment on Australian literature here and obviously there are exceptions, listeners, obviously, but in general, we don't tend to have multiple types of identities interrogated in our fiction if a book is about race, it tends to be about race. If a book is about gender or sexuality, it tends to be about gender or sexuality. And I just remember having my mind blown that you just naturally wove in a trans person without making it a big deal because it shouldn't be a big deal. But so many times in fiction, whether it's the publisher or the marketers or whatever, it doesn't make it into the final book that's on the shelves for readers. And I just wanted to say, well done. (laughs) I
2: mean, thank you. I I mean, I, Really, I remember reading Passing by Noel Larson in college, and that's a book that's about race, but it's also very much about sexuality. You know, it's a very homoerotic book. And I remember the professor just making an offhand comment about how a lot of books about passing are often about multiple forms of passing. And he just kind of tossed that idea out there. And it was something that always stuck with me when I was thinking about this book, And I think this book has, you know, they're sort of passing when it comes to race. There's passing when it comes to class, which is obviously intertwined. In some ways, it's connected, but it's not the same, but it's connected for sure. Stella does not just become a white woman. She becomes a wealthy white woman, and she has to learn the rules of class in the same way that she has to learn the rules of race. So I was interested in all of that. But then I also did want to think about gender, thinking about, you know, gender as a fluid category and also again an unstable category and thinking about these characters that move through these kind of different gendered spaces in a lot of different ways and, and also how all those things connect you know I wanted to think about how all of those things connected as characters are kind of moving through the world.
0: Britt the first time I came across your writing was in Jezebel back what feels like about a million years ago and it's probably so frustrating to you to have to go back to and revisit an essay that you wrote so long ago now but I remember reading I don't know what to do with good white people and you wrote that in 2014 when the police officers who killed Eric Garner and Michael Brown weren't convicted and there was a line in that that I remember highlighting and putting on my desk for such a long time you wrote about privileged white people waiting into sort of I think what we would now call anti-racist activism for the first time. And you said, look at me, the hashtag screams. I know that I'm privileged. I am a good white person. Join me and remind others that you are a good white person too. And my question is, is Stella's husband, Blake, a good white person?
2: (laughs) I think so. And I don't think that I intentionally set out to write him in that way, but I think for me, like when I thought about Stella, okay, she's going to marry this white dude. He doesn't know anything about her past. I thought about like, what type of guy is he? And in kind of early versions, I thought, okay, maybe he's really, you know, this sort of good old boy. He's like very deeply sort of racist white dude. And that's going to be really tense that she's married to him. It's going to put a lot of pressure on the marriage and on her choice to hide her past. And that's kind of the choice that Nella Larson makes in passing, that she marries this very, very racist dude. But then as I kept working on it, that was less interesting to me. I think it felt, he felt a little cartoonish. And then the idea of her marrying this kind of moderate, white, sort of coastal Republican became a lot more fun because it really puts her in a, I think, a different type of bind. You know, she's, Mary's, you know, I describe Blake as the type of guy who, like, you know, votes Republican because he wants lower taxes. You know, he doesn't consider himself a racist. He would consider himself probably very progressive. But he, you know, supports very racist beliefs and ideologies. He's complicit within this system. He ultimately just wants Peace. He wants harmony, which allows him to be complicit with power because he sees anything that disrupts the kind of everyone just getting along. He sees that as a problem. So that type of character became a lot more interesting to me because it felt like Stella was always kind of doing the wrong thing. She was if she was, you know, sort of more aggressively against this black family moving in the neighborhood. Like that's something that would be off putting to him because he finds that she's kind of disrupting the piece. So it's not that he supports black people moving into the neighborhood, but he doesn't support her being like actively against it. So all of those types of things made that relationship a lot more complicated. And I think I also just enjoyed, you know, I don't know. I, I, I think it can be easy for white readers to read characters who are blatantly racist and feel distance. And I don't want people to feel that distance. I want you to know that, like, yeah, Blake is your uncle. He's your father. He voted for Trump. You're sitting with him at Thanksgiving. You know, you like him. (laughs) Like, All of those things can be true. You know, he doesn't have to be, like, a cartoonish villain who is, you know, burning crosses on somebody's lawn. But he is a person who is complicit within this racist system. And that puts Stella in this, like, impossible situation because she both finds that really, you know, distasteful, not putting, but also finds herself having to kind of perform it to keep up her act.
1: I think Blake might have been the stand-in character at so many Thanksgivings in America in 2020. (laughs) I think you're probably right, yeah. Now, The Vanishing Half was published in 2020, and almost immediately went to the top of the New York Times charts. Congratulations from the Australian point of view. That is a huge readership, bigger than our entire market, and just means a lot of people read your gorgeous book. So well done. Thank you. But I have a question about how you find the publishing industry in Australia and in the English-speaking publishing industry around the world. Although it is changing now, the industry has a history of being whitewashed both in terms of who makes the decisions on what is published, who edits the books and who gets published and their stories out there. How have you found the publishing industry? You're doing well in it, but what's it like?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I feel like being asked that question, I feel like, you know, it's like somebody who has found a lottery ticket and you're asking them, like, you know, like I I feel like my experience has been everything that I could want and hope for as far as my publishing experience. And I feel very fortunate But that being said, I think you're totally right. It's an extremely white industry, top to bottom, really, you know, in, in almost every aspect of publishing a book, the decision makers and the gatekeepers are white people. And, you know, that is something that I think can definitely be challenging for writers of color. I mean, when it comes to getting published, people getting paid. There was a lot of conversation around that last year of the advances paid to writers of color versus white writers. So how books are marketed, whether they have a big publicity budget or not, all of those things are filtered through race in some way. So I feel very lucky that I think my publisher sort of bet on me from day one, and I feel very fortunate, but I'm also very aware that I think my experience is very much the exception and not the rule. So... I'm hoping that everybody's had these kind of moments of reckoning and you know, we'll see. I think, I think time will tell. I'm sure you can tell from my tone that I'm not very optimistic, but you know, we'll see. I think that there is so much exciting work being produced right now, particularly by black authors. I think it's really such an exciting time to be a black writer coming out of America right now. So I'm hoping that, you know, it's sad that it does take, it takes You know, it takes a movie like Get Out or it takes, you know, something like my book or takes something like that to open the door for other people. And I'm happy if my book is able to do that. But it's sad that it takes that much. You know, it's sad that it takes something by a black person to do exceptionally well before publishers will think okay yeah we can publish another black woman or we can one just one yeah just one you know and you know i saw there was a an article that was talking about angie thomas and jason reynolds and they said like when angie thomas sent out i think it was for the hate you give there was a publisher that was like well we already published jason reynolds we can't publish her too and it just blew my mind because Jason Reynolds is an exceptionally successful writer. So you would think that if you are comparing somebody to him, you would think, yeah, we want another Jason Reynolds. Like we want another person who is going to be at the 1% of the field, which is where he is as a writer. And instead, no, we already have that one exceptional person. So we don't want another person that we think will also be compared, you know? And it's totally crazy. And of course, her book has been on you know, New York Times bestsellers week for like 200 weeks or whatever, some crazy sort of record. But that type of thinking is still, sadly, I think, you know, a dominant sort of way of thinking within the publishing industry. So I'm hoping people are going through this moment of reckoning, but I'm not holding my breath.
0: Britt, thank you so much for sharing your evening with us and being so candid and thoughtful about The Vanishing Half and the themes around it. And thank you so much for writing the book.
2: Thank you. Thanks for having me.
0: You can pick up your own copy of The Vanishing Half by Britt Bennett or indeed The Mothers, her debut novel, at any good bookstore or online it's by the wonderful people at Hachette Australia who we need to thank for sponsoring this episode along with our creators future women and bad producer productions if you have enjoyed this episode of anonymous was a woman we hope that you will subscribe and while you're there make sure that you give us a little rating like a good one please because that will help more people find the podcast and get more people talking about books Our next episode will be on Monday and we are going to be talking about the theme, Confusion. Talk to you then.